This is Marathon Training Academy, episode 298. This episode is brought to you by the Chirp Wheel Plus. Don't let back pain stop you from enjoying your run. The Chirp Wheel Plus is a back pain relief device that targets muscles around your spine. It's shaped like a wheel and wrapped in a compression padding. The wheel is 5 inches wide and has a spinal canal that cradles your spine and gives your muscles a nice four-way stretch. So head over to gochirp.co forward slash MTA. That's a .co, not a .com. To get your Chirp Wheel Plus 3-pack for 15% off with the code MTA. That's gochirp.co forward slash MTA. Hey guys, Trevor here. A little bit unusual of an introduction. Angie is actually coming back from the Hartford Marathon, which she ran yesterday and got a five-minute PR. She's really excited. She finished in 3.29.32, and I am actually fresh back from Austria and Germany. I had a marathon in Austria that I did. So lots to tell you about on the next episode. And of course, the biggest news is that yesterday, Saturday the 12th of October, Elliot Kipchoge became the first person in history to run a sub-two-hour marathon. This is something the running world has debated and looked forward to for, I don't know, for decades. So we're going to get to all of that in future episodes. So much to talk about. But today, we have a real treat for you guys. We're going to bring you an interview with the legendary coach, Bob Larson. You may remember from the last episode, episode 297, we spoke with Matthew Futterman about his new book, Running to the Edge, A Band of Misfits, and the Guru Who Unlocked the Secrets of Speed. Well, we happen to have that guru on the show today. We we're really excited how this worked out. We have the man himself, Coach Bob Larson. He's probably best known as Meb Kofleski's coach, and he's a super nice guy, as you're going to hear. Coach Bob was born in 1939. He is 80 years old at the time of this recording, and he still runs every day. He coached at Grossmount College and Monte Vista High School, which are both in California. And there, his teams won conference titles and national championships. He then became the head track and field coach at UCLA and led athletes to a total of 20 NCAA titles. And the record of winning just goes on and on. Um, he retired from UCLA and then, with the help of Coach Joe Vigil, started the Mammoth Track Club in Mammoth Lakes, California, in order to make U.S. marathoners competitive again on the international level. And that's where Meb Kofleski and Dina Castor come into the story. There is a documentary movie about Coach Bob and the Humal Toads and also Meb Kofleski. And actually, there are just a lot of well-known runners in this movie. It's called City Slickers Can't Stay With Me, The Coach Bob Larson Story. You can currently get it on Amazon Prime and also on iTunes. I watched it before we interviewed Coach Bob. It's very enjoyable. Definitely highly recommend checking it out. And the movie culminates with Meb Kofleski winning the Boston Marathon in 2014. And just the whole story builds to that moment. And man, it just gets you. It's well done. It's made by Robert Lusitania. Again, it's called City Slickers Can't Stay With Me, the Coach Bob Larson story. So in this interview, we're going to talk with Coach Bob about his background, how he got into coaching, what the running scene was like back in the 60s, what are some of the conventional wisdom of the time, and just really how he became a mad scientist for our sport. I know you guys are going to enjoy it. Here's our conversation with Coach Bob Larson. Well on my way, well on my way, well on my way. Now that I'm well on my way, well on my way, well on my way, well on my way. All right, we're on the podcast now with Coach Bob Larson, who's joining us from sunny California. Coach Bob, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, Trevor. Thank you. And I said sunny because we can see out of, out of your window here. We're doing this on Skype, and it looks like a beautiful day out there today. It is. <laughs> it's a beautiful day all the time in California, yes. Trevor. <laughs> <laughs> I know. What are we doing here in uh, Pennsylvania? <laughs> yeah, come on out and join us. That's right. <laughs> we'll go for a run and then a swim. Run on the beach is my favorite. That sounds awesome. Mm-hmm. So I want you to go back to your early childhood and talk about how you got interested in running. Was it something that seemed to come naturally for you? It really did. Uh, I grew up in a log cabin out in the woods in northern Minnesota. And, you know, just getting back and forth to school or to go get the cattle and stuff, you know, you had to put in a couple of miles. And and then when we did get together with uh, kids my age, I could always run faster or further than they could pretty easily. And 
I suppose when you do something well, it kind of is encouraging you to do more of it. So is it true the cabin didn't have any uh, running water or electricity? I think I remember reading that. That's correct. It didn't. In Minnesota? We were pretty primitive uh, <laughs> out there on the farm. We would get snowed in for days at a time, sometimes 40 below. That was unusual, but it would get that cold occasionally. And, of course, we were working on the farm all the time. So we mm-hmm. used horses quite a bit. And uh, you do get snowed in, and uh, we're a long ways for, from any highway. So we were 15 miles by dirt road from the nearest little uh, town. Uh, but it's great for a kid, you know, especially when you don't know anything different. You think this is... Uh, <laughs> This is kind of challenging, but a fun thing. Do you think like something I've I've been thinking about, you think having humble beginnings like that and enduring some of those hardships makes a person a tougher runner? I kind of think it does. You get used to being uncomfortable and ignoring it. Mm-hmm. Uh, years later, when I went up skiing at Mammoth Lakes up here where we've trained over the years, uh, but when I was still like in college, took some friends up there. They hadn't been in snow before. So we sneed, skied a couple times down the hill and they said, uh, Bob, isn't your uh, face and your hands and your fingers really cold? And I had to think a minute and I said, oh, yeah. I said, well, <laughs> winter up here. You know, being from Minnesota, that stuff you just ignore. Uh, of course, that's how it is all winter here. Uh, just something you do. You learn to do. When you started running, what did the running world look like? I know there's a lot of things that we just take for granted now. We can so easily get into the sport, but what did it look like back then? Well, when I was first exposed to formal training and uh, Raleigh Holt here in San Diego at Hoover High School, and I was fresh off the farm, totally clueless, and uh, I could beat everybody in gym class. And so he said, you got to come out for track. I said, what's that? And he said, well, we run various distances. And to myself, I was so shy, but I said, well, city slickers can't beat me because I was, you know, growing up on the farm. You just feel like, you know, I was covering distances while they were sitting around probably and had an easier life than I did. But in those days, the training, even though Raleigh was really good and we were beating everybody, I won the mile championship and we won almost all our cross-country meets. Uh, But it was very primitive training. And he talked me into thinking about being a coach. Uh, and gradually I realized that there had to be better ways of doing this, these things. And uh, hmm. we'd only interval train. That's all we did. We didn't go out on any road runs or anything. And our mileage was really minimal. And we weren't allowed or we weren't supposed to run during the summer between cross country and track. We weren't supposed to run on weekends. Wow. So you can add up the mileage and it was practically nothing. Hmm. So uh, for us to be able to do uh, the, uh, some of the things we did, you look back, you say, oh, my goodness. Uh, I wish I would have known what I know now. <laughs> so do you think the process of struggling with injury as a teenager because of all those track intervals kind of led you to take your running off the track and you know probably set the foundation for what you later used as a coach? Absolutely, Angie. It was a blessing in disguise. Uh, right down here at the beach where I am now, where I still run, uh, I came down here when I was in uh, college because I was developing stress fractures, which none of us knew what it were in those days. They just said, you got to run through it. And, you know, that was a disaster. But I found I could run three days a week on the soft sand, eight miles really hard and and had no more injuries. And that cured the problem. I did that for a full season. So that was one of the things I picked up. And, and also when you're sitting on the sidelines with stress fractures, uh, you realize in, you know, later when I had athletes that are injured, how difficult that is, how emotional that is. You don't even want to watch sports because you feel like how can they be jumping up and down like playing basketball mm-hmm. or doing any of this stuff? Because the, the shins are just are just excruciating when you stand up. And uh, so, yes, that gave me empathy for people when they did and patience when somebody was injured. Because you knew what that process was like, you know, I mean, probably for a long time, you just ran through the pain, not really knowing what was going on and then being super frustrated because you couldn't, you know, get to the next level where you wanted to be. We always uh, trained too hard. Uh, we didn't do enough training. We didn't do any background training. By then we were running some in the summer and between seasons on weekends when I was in college. And my coach was good, chalk sportsman. And again, we were we were in the NAIA and almost won the championship in cross country two years in a row, my freshman and sophomore year. So we were pretty good. We were doing better than most, but we were racing in workouts. It was mostly interval trained, almost exclusively intervals. And by pounding like that and not having enough background, 
everybody was getting injured. The only guy that didn't get injured was a, a um, engineer major. He always survived to the end and was beating us at the end of the season because he could only work out a couple days a week because of his, his engineering classes. So <laughs> some of these things were starting to dawn on me. There had to be a better way of doing this because the Europeans were running faster than we were. Speaking of the Europeans, I heard that you were seeing what Roger Bannister was doing. He would just run as fast as he could and then pass out at the end of the mile. And he thought, that must be what I need to do. <laughs> it absolutely was. And that's a great mindset. Because when I was in high school, you know, starting out, I thought, yes, you should you should collapse at the end, maybe black out if you really put everything into it. So if somebody passed me, you know, I'd go after them and I said, oh, boy, now this will this is really going to make me work. So I again, it it was the best mindset I could possibly have. And again, growing up on the farm, you know, that discomfort or even even some pain involved in all that because we weren't in great shape. Uh, because of how little volume we were doing, that it was easy to get into a place where you were really hurting. But I enjoyed that. I enjoyed, you know, putting on a pair of shorts and shoes and just seeing if you could out-tough somebody else. And in my early days of coaching, not that I was pushing them as nearly as hard as I had experienced, but still I conveyed to them that was kind of the fun of of, uh, distance running is just – seeing how much you can endure. And if you get in great shape, you don't have to endure a whole lot until just the end of the race. And hmm. and then if you're strong enough and determined enough, then that's the contest. So it sounds like you you know had coaches who did really the best they could with the knowledge they had. How did you know that you wanted to get into coaching yourself? And what do you think are some aspects that go into being a good coach? Well, I think, again, Raleigh Holt was the one, my high school coach, and, you know, and even why I eventually coached in high school rather than staying at college level where they offered me the job right there at San Diego State. I did that for a year as a graduate student. But I just felt that there was a lot more to this sport that we didn't know. And we were so close. We felt we could break national records, which were really modest in those days, if we could just stay healthy. Uh, so I had a professor. Call, the uh, Los Angeles schools were recruiting me in my junior year when I was just starting to run. But by my senior year, I was injured and so didn't have a scholarship, stayed at home, went to San Diego State. Best thing that ever happened to me. It was perfect for me. And uh, Dr. Fred Cash was one of my uh, professors, and he was way ahead of his time with a lot of things, including uh, how to deal with uh, endurance. And, and, uh, I, I just picked up a lot for him. I became a grader for uh, him and got to know him well enough that the scientific part of it really appealed to me. So I thought that was the answer. Uh, but I realized, you know, they didn't have really the answer either. How many 400 sh- should you really run? <laughs> and so I thought, well, this is going to have to be an experiment. So I was fortunate enough to have athletes who were willing to experiment, and I was experimenting on my own. And that's how I became more and more uh, interested in coaching. When I entered college, even though my high school coach had uh, encouraged me to go into coaching, I still wasn't sure this is what I wanted to do. But as I got into it more, it seemed like there's a lot more here than what we're doing in if I can do something with this, that's going to be valuable to myself and you know people that I was going to work with. It sounds like you really made yourself a student of the sport and then also weren't afraid to try things that maybe were new or controversial at the time. Absolutely. In fact, if I saw something, I was never too interested in what athletes were doing, but I was always interested in what coaches were doing. It was, I would even drive all the way to Los Angeles to hear John Wooden speak or a football coach or Hmm. Bear Bryant or whoever was coming out to Los Angeles. Uh, So you pick up things about coaching, you know, how do you appeal to guys and motivate them to do these things that are required, especially in distance running where you can't be there for every mile they're going to run. So motivated them, self-motivation is the most important thing in distance running so that they'll do this whether you're there or not and just love the sport. And um, so those things uh, always uh, were in the back of my mind. I would take classes in psychology uh, specifically to think, okay, how does this apply to, to coaching? We have to mention, you've read the book, but it was, uh, and Matt Futterman does a wonderful job in there because he ex- explains his own uh, running and what he feels like. And that great feeling when you get to a level where you're running pretty fast, which we would call threshold or tempo run, running now, 
where you feel like you can run forever, and that is the greatest feeling in the world. Uh, going back to where we were in those days, uh, when, when we were first starting out, it was so intriguing because knowing that it's right in front of you, that you just know that some really, really wonderful things can happen if you can just what we call now crack the code. I even wrote to uh, Percy Sarity or Saruti, who was in Australia with Herb Elliott towards the end of my career at, at San Diego State. And I said, can we come down and train with you at Portsea in Australia? And he said, oh, we'd welcome you. We'd love to have you, but we don't have any money, et cetera. So I got two friends together and I said, if we work all summer, you know, as soon as we graduate, let's go to Australia. And they thought it was a good idea, but then they kind of reneged and we never got that done. But I was reading everything I could. I mean, that's how, for whatever it is, the ability of human beings to run long distances just really intrigued me. And to get better and better at it, I was searching for every way of, of adding to my knowledge and be able to do this at a better level. Was there any conventional wisdom around back then that proved to not really be true or helpful that you kind of discovered? From my understanding of what I've read, back in those days, they were just doing a lot of track workouts. No one was really doing much off off of the track. That's really true. The thing that a lot of people were copying was like there were a couple of Europeans who had taken interval training. Uh, Zatopek, for instance, yeah. uh, would do 5,400 meters in one session or more and do it, you know, day after day. So that, and, you know, he, he was winning medals. He won three in Helsinki in 52. And um, so a lot of people were pattering it after that. And, and that was part of what was driving Americans. Um, that we were doing intervals almost exclusively. Hmm. Warm-ups even were too short. By the time I got to San Diego State, we did start doing three-mile warm-ups. So we were ahead of our time, as I said, and we were beating almost everybody. Uh, but then when we got onto the track to do the workout, we would start racing again. And we didn't have enough background where there was the long, what we would call a aerobic buildup, now, we weren't doing that. We were just getting on that track almost immediately, and that was just destroying us as far as progress. But this was a wonderful time. We knew we didn't know, you know? <laughs> so it was very intriguing. Uh, if all the knowledge was out there and all we could run was a certain level, then, you know, then you'd say, okay, this is the limit of my ability. In those days, we knew there, was, there had to be more because, again, the Europeans were running faster. I think they were doing a few of these other things. At least they were getting more background or they were more gradual in introducing these interval workouts. So we were first day of workout, we might go out and start hammering away on mile repeats and had no background. Uh, and even in high school, we didn't do mile repeats, but we'd be so sore, we'd have trouble walking home. The next day, we'd have trouble getting out of bed. You know, we were really, you know, doing some, some bad stuff to ourselves. <laughs> And it seems like there wasn't much money invested in long distance running back then, you know, in your first coaching, especially. So you were trying to balance the needs of your team on a shoestring budget. And, you know, sometimes like knowledge and money kind of go hand in hand, the advancement of knowledge. So what was that like? Well, and that's why I started the Mool Toads, uh, you know, when I was first started in high school, is that uh, I wanted a, a way of maybe raising a little bit of money. And to have some fun, that's why I came up with that name. It wasn't the Toads at first, or Hamul Athletic Club, kind of a exagger total exaggeration of this little uh, four-corner uh, area with a bar and a church and a and a grocery store in those days up in the hills, going to Hamul, which is a crossing into uh, or close to crossing into uh, Mexico. So I thought I didn't want them to be real serious when they're running between seasons in some of these races. So. But it was a way of getting attention a little bit to the fact that we were going to try to do some things and uh, have some fun with it. Uh, and that led to eventually, you know, the Hamul Toads who put that together with some great guys and won the national title in 76. But getting back to, uh, we have to give credit to Robert Lusitana, who was one of the guys that ran for the Hamul Toads, ran at Grossmont Community College, ran at UCLA. So he knew all this stuff. And he wanted to put together a documentary involving a lot of this stuff. And uh, I discouraged him a couple of times and he went ahead and, and started the project. He took four years. And of course, a lot of it featured, uh, uh, it kind of starts with Meb Keflesky and ends with Meb winning Boston. Uh, 
And uh, but he put all this other stuff in there, including the Mool Toads winning the national title in 76 and going back and talking about all these things. And that's what inspired um, when uh, Matt Futterman uh, saw it a, a couple of years ago uh, in Boston when it was first shown back there and inspired him to say, oh, I got to write a book about this. So how all this came together. Uh, but it is about an era in which era of time when we were learning more and more every, virtually every season. And we tried everything. When I had the Hamul Toads then, they, some of them now were uh, across the country, including Lydiard was doing just the opposite of interval training. He was doing 100 miles a week or more of on-the-road training. And uh, Clark was doing the same in Australia. So we were being presented with some wonderful uh, examples of other ways of training. So I just glommed on all that stuff. And so I'd let the guys, if some of the guys wanted to run high mileage with some of the Hamul Toad guys did, 175 miles a week. I said, okay, <laughs> uh, you know, you don't, they're not in college at that point. So we didn't have to uh, get them ready for any particular race. And then some of the guys, I said, you know, uh, we have Igloy doing seven days a week of interval training, twice a day, except Sunday, he's got one ring. says, some of you guys want to try that. Oh, yeah, we want to try that. Hmm. So we had, it was a perfect lab for me to compare what would work and what wouldn't work. So, you know, I gradually and gradually put together more balanced training and figured out what was really viable and what wasn't. And because of my injury history, I knew that we had to figure out things that would get the best out of us and these athletes without getting injured. So that's what was producing these thoughts and why I was experimenting and why I was very fortunate to have some great athletes that I could try everything with them. And they were willing to do it. It sounds like they should have been called the Humul guinea pigs instead of the toads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we didn't, they didn't feel like guinea pigs and I never thought of it that way. Right. I just thought we're searching for, but yeah, in a way they're, <laughs> We were all guinea pigs in those days. <laughs> we had the chance to have Meb Kafleski on the podcast earlier this year. So when you first heard of Meb, what was it that attracted you to him as an athlete? Well, you know, I was a head coach at UCLA, uh, track and field and cross country. So I could get great walk-ons in uh, the distances. And, you know, with men, the NC2A would only allow 14 and then 12 eventually scholarships, you know, that's total, not per year, but total on your team. Wow. Well, you have 21 events, championship events. So how are you going to cover your team with 12 scholarships? Uh, if you give 12 to distance running, which some of the schools were doing in those days, you're going to win the NC2A in cross country, but we're trying to win NC2A in track and field. So we'd give a, a lot of our scholarships to sprinters who can score in the NC2A as freshmen. And they can do two or three events and win a run on the relay and, and throwers who could do a couple events and could get to NC2A level really quickly. So I, would, I was relying on walk-ons. If they did well when they got to UCLA, then I would give them some scholarship money and some ended up on fulls. But Meb came along at that time. When I visited him, uh, he had looked pretty good on, at a race at UCLA, a high school invitational. And I'd heard, you know, about him a little bit. So when I visited, I was thinking he's going to be a partial scholarship guy, but, you know, high level. And then I met the family and uh, I was so influenced by what this family was doing. And 10 brothers and sisters, small place they were living in, and they were all studying hard. And they're really good students. Mom and pop had never had a formal education, hadn't had the opportunity uh, just wonderful things they were doing. So I did offer him a full and uh, I didn't think he was going to go to the level he obtained, but I'd had other great athletes. And soon I realized that he fit the mode of hmm. Dead Mendoza's, Kurt Pfeffer's and Terry Cotton's and some of the other guys I had coached. So I convinced him if we do go about this slowly and don't get you injured or all the things I went through, you're going to have a post collegiate career. And um, and that's what we did. That's awesome. Sounds like gambling on him was, you know, definitely one of the best decisions you made in your career. <laughs> it, it is. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of pushed or nudged into doing some of these things that, you know, I'd like to say I had the wisdom to figure it out in advance, but I really didn't. You know, again, I, I didn't realize how great he was going to be. But part of this is not just physical ability. There's other guys that were 
just as talented as he was in high school. A lot of guys beat him in at UCLA. A lot of guys beat him, but he had his moments when he would win championships too. But you know what he did beyond, uh, and and we had like on a couple of those teams, we would have several Olympic gold medalists, like in the sprints and the throws. So I was used to that level of an athlete. But for him to be able to come with that intensity to every workout and every race and to do it over that long period of time and to be willing to go to altitude. And, you know, we put together the training group with Joe V. Hill and I talked Joe to coming down to California and joining us in this effort. And we realized what we could do using the Olympic Training Center here in San Diego and then uh, Dina Castor was our leader for women. You couldn't have a better person. And then Meb on the men's side. So all this stuff, you know, fell into place. And so we had just after I retired from UCLA, you know, put full time into this along with Joe. And uh, what a rewarding experience mm. with, with other great athletes, too, that we had during that time. I want to circle back to this in a minute. First, we've, we mentioned Roger Bannister. You mentioned Zyda Peck. Did you get to meet? Some of these folks, did you ever meet Roger Bannister or Zydepec? I never got to meet Zydepec. I was coaching at UCLA, and he, there was a reception for him. Couldn't get off the track quick enough to get over there, but I would have loved to because I, I just loved what he had done and what he stood for. And I never got to meet Roger Bannister either uh, or Herb El- Elliott and a couple of those guys from Australia. I did meet some of the coaches, uh, uh, Lydiard I spent some time with and asked him a lot of questions. And, uh, you know, those guys were icons in the sport. Mm-hmm. I did get to know uh, Bill uh, Bowerman and Bill Dellinger, you know, at Oregon and terrific coaches and innovators uh, and, and others around, uh, you know, especially in the U.S. And again, I, you know, the coaches other than just track and field coaches lent a lot of uh, learning to what uh, gradually we were absorbed that we could use in, in in all sports. Now it's a scientific, it's much more scientific at every level. I'm surprised baseball. <laughs> <laughs> For a long time, you couldn't break into baseball. No, they had to do it the traditional way. You know, when you say baseball, getting beat at first base or second base is that quick. If you're just a little bit quicker, you know, hmm. uh, and teach people to run. Uh, and do these certain things, drills. And, you know, I went to Europe years ago and picked up on uh, plyometrics and everything that you could make a person more athletic. And we still weren't doing that in most sports in the United States until fairly recently. Now they're doing all these things and good for them. And I love watching the sport because I look at what coaching can really do. It seemed like first, though, that, I mean, the American distance running scene really went through a slump, you know, kind of after that Salazar, you know, kind of fell off the scene with his injuries and everything. So do you think a lot of these breakthroughs and advancements, and I mean, especially probably your interest in coaching distance runners, you know, was trying to revive, you know, what had been lost in the United States? Absolutely. In fact, you know, Joe and I were just trying to get everybody back to what we were doing in the uh, 70s and and early 80s when our guys are really running well. We had two guys or I had two guys over the years that ran 210 in the marathon. Uh, uh, Ed Mendoza made the Olympic team in 10,000 meters and Kirk Pfeffer. Uh, Kirk Pfeffer was running 217 in the marathon when he was 18 years old at Grossmont Community College. And he was still running marathons when he was 50. (laughs) So a lot of things that, again, you ask about what was misinformation. That's part of it is, you know, running distances is going to slow you down or this and that. And there's still stuff out there that people, I think, are doing incorrectly. But Joe and I, when we put together the training group back in 2000 to try to get American distance running back to an internationally competitive level, it was bigger than just us, but we felt if we did this right and added altitude, and I really thought it was important we add altitude because uh, almost all the medals are going to people that are training at altitude. So we felt we had to do that. Obviously, we had the perfect place in Mammoth Lakes. So these are things that were was a, a, a wonderful project, and we knew the goal was to get to be with the best in the world like we had been. And, it, and I told everybody – and Joe, the same thing. If we went back to running 210, at least we, had, we would have some guys competitive at the Olympic, at least they'd make it to the Olympic Games because we didn't have anybody in 2000 that could do that. Hmm. And here, you know, I had a guy at UCLA that 
ran 213. Another guy ran 215. I mean, they weren't marathoners. The miler ran 215 just off of the training we were doing. You know, he's running twice a day, putting in pretty good miles, rested for a week and jumped in a marathon, part of the training in the winter and ran 215. And now we had Americans that couldn't break 215. So we saw the opportunity to do something that, and we're very grateful. Now, a lot of other good programs and groups uh, did a lot of these same things and uh, and they're continuing on even to higher levels now. So, we're, you know, we've, we're, we're very pleased that all this stuff has uh, come together. And in that lost decade in the U.S., meanwhile, the East African runners are getting better and better. And what, what are some of the secrets to their success? You know, it's, it's funny because I learned that the Kenyans, when they really started training hard and all of a sudden, you know, everybody's saying, well, how come I guess the Africans can't run a marathon? You know, because they were running very fast on the track. But for a while there, we were beating them in the marathon. And uh, when I say we, I'm talking about, you know, Europe and the rest of the world. And then all of a sudden they're running fast. In 95, everything changed. Uh, All of a sudden you could tell that the Africans were really training. The East Africans were training and Moroccans too, uh, Northern Africans. So, uh, you know, now times are just tumbling. So one of the things I saw even before that was the Kenyans were talking about their training. Well, they were doing about the same thing we had done at Monte Vista High School and Grossmont College. Not that they knew we had done this, but it's in the book. It's in the the documentary, uh, City Slickers Can't Stay With Me, is we were going out, starting the runs easy. We called progressive tempo now. And we would just start picking it up. I'd run with them in those days for a couple miles and I'd have everybody stop. We'd stretch a little bit and I still wouldn't tell them where that we were going to run, but we'd continue on. And then finally I'd say, okay, we're going to do this particular loop. So then they would take off and they are going hard. If you see the film, you'll see those guys just really working it. And, you know, Meb was doing that same thing uh, up at Mammoth at 7,000 feet, 8,000 feet, Adena. And, you know, that was a big part of our training. So uh, once we got people doing that again and also increasing their mileage so that they had the background before they started doing that type of training, then you could do the interval training. They wouldn't break down. So that was the key to getting everybody doing that. And um, it worked even better than we anticipated because we got the two medals in 2004 in the Olympic Games. I was fortunate enough to be the distance coach. So I could get there the year before, look at the course, go over everything. It was hilly. It was hot and humid. So we felt we could do some things that would take advantage of all those things and those challenges. And both our athletes did that. So we were the only country and, you know, we're training at Mammoth. So the only area to get two medals that year in the Olympic Games. And then we didn't have to convince everybody that altitude was really important. And the type of training we were doing, similar to what we were doing a couple of decades earlier, would still work. The results were speaking for themselves at that point. <laughs> yes. That's awesome. So we've thrown around the term threshold running a lot. Um, You're talking about the pace that someone can sustain without building up that oxygen debt. So that hard pace that you can go at without your, like the lactic acid building up. Is that correct? Yes. uh, That's your threshold pace where you're right there on that edge, where if you go just a little bit harder and you're working hard, again, if you look at the documentary, it's it's still available on uh, Amazon and iTunes, I guess. But if you download that and look at it, you see how Meb is really working hard. And yeah, he can answer me if I'm on the bike or we have somebody else or I'm in my Jeep and we're giving him a water and everything, but he's not going to carry on a conversation. And they'll show even back Grossmont College guys and the Wool Toads doing that same thing. We never changed it. And uh, we more formalized that uh, training, but we discovered it worked way back when I was at Monte Vista High School in the 1960s that we were beating everybody, even the large school uh, teams uh, that had more access to more kids. But our guys were doing that type of training. We did the other stuff, too, some of the intervals and et cetera. But we got them really fit because your body will react to threshold uh, training probably a little bit more than almost anything else. And once you get that threshold at a really, really high level, you're saving the extra energy uh, I'm, I'm not just talking in physiological terms here, but but just the basic idea that you've got more in the tank when you get down to that last mile when the racing really starts. Exactly. Because you have that high threshold and that 
we ran against teams several times where I knew what the coach and the team were doing, where we couldn't have done their five times a mile. Not that we weren't trying to do it, but we couldn't. We weren't that fit yet early in the season. But our guys on the road were just were at a level where they were running sub five minute mile on the road and putting together a lot of these miles. Now we go to the race four miles and longer and we'd win pretty easily, even though if it had been a race of repeat miles, repeat anything on the track, we wouldn't have been able to stay with those same guys. So that convinced me early on, pretty early in my career of coaching, that we had something, we were ahead of everybody in that regard. So most of the people in our audience are never going to be elite level runners, but you know, what are some of the things that, what advice that you would give to them to how to improve their fitness and their performance? Well, I think the fitness part of it is this. Uh, I think it's important to find something that you can live with because this is a very healthy thing to do. So number one is how much exercise will get the job done? What's the least amount you can do to become healthy? Right. What is that? Is it three days a week of 10 minutes or something? The guy that wrote uh, aerobics, Ken Cooper. Ken, I think it was mm-hmm. Ken Cooper said 15 miles a week. If you're doing any more than 15 miles a week, you're probably doing it for other than for your health reasons. Yep. <laughs> uh, and I kind of I see that. Uh, when I've been busy 15 miles a week, when I didn't have time to do any more than 15, 15 kind of keeps you everything together pretty well. Your muscles and joints don't complain if you're running 15 miles a week. 30, you can lose weight. 20, you can lose weight. Uh, you know, and that's even better, but are you going to do that for the rest of your life? No. And you're probably not even going to do 15, but if you settle for 15 for a long, long time, then it becomes like brushing your teeth or doing anything else. It's, it's easy. Now, 15 isn't going to get you to Boston, but (laughs) you don't have to add, (laughs) if you're, if you go out and run 15 miles a week, you're fit enough. Now you can increase your training pretty easily from that point. And incorporating that one long run a week, do some balance training with Meb uh, and Kirk Pfeffer years ago when he got older. And Meb kind of thought of this on his own. And the same thing we had done previously was go two days fairly easy, then a day hard, two days fairly easy, day hard, two days fairly easy, day hard. So that's a nine day rotation uh, where you only have three fairly tough days because people generally they read a book or read something and and figure out they got to go too hard on too many days so let's say three days in nine now what do you do on those three days one day could be a long run one day could be the threshold or tempo run and one day could be an interval run but first get in shape yes do the threshold or do the aerobic for quite a while then introduce uh, threshold running Joe Vigil and I felt that you shouldn't do interval training if in an ideal world, if you didn't have to get ready for a race right away, don't do the interval training until you can hold your threshold pace for several miles. Now introduce interval training. When I did that with athletes over the years, even back in Monta Vista and Grossmont days, then at the end of the year, we could peak and those guys had their best success. So you're patient. You gradually introduce a little bit more work. But don't try to do even hard, easy, hard, easy for a lot of people, especially people that are not, you know, at the highest fitness levels and going for some championship. Hard, easy, maybe is a little bit too much. It maybe should be easy, easy or easy, moderate, hard, easy, moderate, hard, easy, moderate, hard. Everybody's different. So you experiment a little bit. But the idea is to find something that you can continue for a long period of time. That's great advice. You mentioned before we got on the actual interview that you're going to be going on a run after we get off the phone here. What does your running life look like these days? Slow. <laughs> Keeping it that is endurance. It's awful slow. It's all right. <laughs> I can't believe I'm running that slow, but uh, it still feels good. Nothing is better than running along the beach barefoot, just where the water comes lapping in. And then you come back and you go in the water and the surf, you know, you cool down. Oh, my goodness. What a great feeling. And I find if I run every day, it, uh, a couple of years ago, I gave a, a lecture to 
200 doctors back in Boston the night before the Boston Marathon. They wanted me to speak to these doctors. I thought they were going to all uh, man the aid station. So I said, is anybody actually going to run the marathon tomorrow? Almost 200 hands went up. Wow. I quickly adjusted my, <laughs> my remarks. And one of the things I said is I said, you know, when I was uh, finishing up at UCLA, that was after I retired from UCLA, I said, last couple of years at UCLA, I noticed guys my age were having trouble with their joints, knees and hips. Said I better cut it back a little bit. I wasn't running that much, but I was running every day. And sure enough, after I cut back even a little bit more, I'd wake up in the morning and my knees would be a little bit crunchy. Oh, that's old age. And my calves would would uh, cramp on me and then I'd lose a couple uh, weeks of training. When I retired, I said, oh, just for the fun of it, I'll go out and run every morning. I'll run a little bit further. No more creakiness in my knees. This is a long time ago. And no more cramping in the calves or anything. So I ran at least three miles every day for about two, three years. And, you know, if I had a little more time, uh, then I'd go out and run a little bit further. Uh, but it was never more than maybe 45 minutes an hour. Uh, so it wasn't a lot, you know, maybe never more than 30 miles in a week, 15 to 30. No pain. Wow. Anywhere. Every day. You know, it just felt great. So I shared that with the doctors and I said, I've never seen this in the literature. We're a little bit more running. We might require a little bit more uh, to cure, you know, some of these things that we think are just old age approaching. And so afterwards, a half a dozen doctors came up and they said, coach, we had the same experience. And so it wouldn't work for everybody. But I'm saying three days a week or every other day of running for some reason is maybe not enough for all of us and a little bit more might be just a little bit more ideal just for our overall good health and fitness and our bodies are designed for that. You know the book, uh, We're Born to Run? Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a great story. He exaggerates a little <laughs> bit about, like Futterman exaggerates a little bit how influential I am on distance running and everything. <laughs> oh, he I does don't know. <laughs> that with the long distance, the ultra long distance runners. But it makes a great story and there's some real good advice in there and it's again i wish i would have seen that when i was first coaching too that guys had done all this stuff i would have loved to try some of those things i would have loved to try that 100 mile uh, bad water run you wow know? maybe <laughs> really? i wouldn't be talking to you right now if i'd done that but <laughs> <laughs> you know stuff like that yeah. uh, again attracted me to distance running i was pretty good at all sports but it was intriguing that a person could get out and and run very fast or, or, or long distance and you do much of that and you don't feel hardly anything at all. And uh, that, again, is a great feeling. And, and uh, Matt Futterman certainly expresses that in the book. And, and the, I think the, the documentary does that same thing. Yeah, both are excellent resources. We'd encourage people to get the book and watch the documentary. And I'd like to add one thing, and I'm interrupting me. I uh, interrupt yes, you. I apologize, but you're, you've got my enthusiasm about this whole thing. Yeah. The one thing that I feel, and I've got to express this very much, and I'm so grateful that Robert Lusitana and uh, Matt Futterman, you know, did the, the film and the book. You know, the book and the film could be about a lot of people. A lot of coaches, a lot of, of uh, teachers, and a, and a lot of uh, parents. You know, it gives us an opportunity to work with young people. And it shows you, because they interview some of these people, uh, you know, later in life, and how much these experiences, we use distance running, track and field in general, but every sport, how that gives us a platform for being able to appeal to young people uh, to do a lot of things in their life uh, beyond just being in sports and how important that was in their life. And so my message was to other coaches and to parents, these young people really are listening, even though a lot of times I thought they weren't, and I'm sure teachers experience this all the time, but in the background, they're listening to you. Uh, so be careful what you say and be motivated uh, to spread that message that this information we have, we, we should trans transmit it to other people, young people, and hope that they'll pass it on to others in future generations. I agree. And we're very fortunate to be able to be in these positions, as I said. Well, I think you're using your influence um, for a lot of good. I know many people are going to be inspired out there and get a lot out of this conversation. So thank you so much for taking this time with us today. I had a lot of fun with it. Thank <laughs> you, Trevor. Thank you, Anthony. 
You've motivated me to get out and run now, so <laughs> I'm going to do that next, too. Well, that's the whole thing. That's why we do this stuff. That's, that's right. right. Well, you can both have good runs now, All right. right? That's right. Enjoy your run, Coach Bob. It's an honor to talk to you. I, I'm going to. Thank you very much. All Thank right. you. Bye-bye. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Coach Bob Larson. Such an honor to talk with him, and we really appreciate him coming on the podcast. We would like to thank Tiger Balm Active for sponsoring this episode. I know you guys like to change up your workout routines when you do cross-training days. Maybe one day you'll do core and then legs, perhaps arms and back. But some of those muscles are in hard-to-reach places. It makes it tough to get relief when they're sore. That's why there is such a thing called Tiger Balm Active Muscle Spray. You can get relief to those muscles in hard-to-reach places. Just spray it on after you're done training. It's not greasy. It's easy to throw it in your bag, take it to your next marathon. Tiger Balm Active also makes a muscle rub, which is perfect for pre-workout warm-up. And they make a muscle gel if you don't want to use a spray. So help your hard-to-reach muscles recover after your workout with Tiger Balm Active Muscle Spray. Go to your local Rite Aid, Walgreens, or CVS to pick it up today. And while you're there, you can grab their Muscle Rub and their Muscle Gel. That's Tiger Balm Active, available at your local Rite Aid, Walgreens, or CVS. Okay, we are just fresh off of our conversation with Coach Bob Larson. Such a gracious guy and very fun to talk to. So Angie, if somebody wanted to do a threshold run, what exactly does that look like? Well, like Coach Bob was saying, first you want to make sure you have a strong endurance base before you start throwing any speed work. That's going to help keep you healthy and avoid overuse injury or overtraining. But once you have that strong endurance base, um, a threshold run, also known as a tempo run, you're going to want to start out with at least a couple miles of easy warm-up running. This is going to be anywhere from two to three miles at an easy pace, maybe a conversational pace, whatever you want to refer to it as. And then gradually, you're going to drop into that comfortably hard pace. So I think he referred to it as that pace where you feel like you're pushing, but you could just, you know, kind of go for a long time. Um, And you keep the pace under your threshold, which is where the oxygen debt starts Uh, building up. So you don't want to go anaerobic. You you want all this to be aerobic, which is using your oxygen systems in your body. How do you even know if that's happening? Well, a lot of it you can tell um, if you want to just really listen to your body. Um, You know, can you keep up this pace for 30 minutes? If not, then you're probably pushing too hard. Um, If you could go for way longer at this pace, then you're probably not pushing hard enough. So like he was talking about how Um, I think it was Meb was running um, a threshold or tempo run and coach Bob was on the bike next to him. And he said he could answer me if I asked him a question, but he's not going to, you know, say much more than yes, no, just the very basic information. Not going to waste oxygen with talking. (laughs) Exactly. Some of the smartwatches now will do a lot of tracking of your metrics, your heart rate, and they'll suggest different paces. You know, maybe there is the easy zone and then there's the aerobic zone and then they'll have like a threshold zone and they'll have the anaerobic. I have a watch that it's basically telling me right now that my threshold pace is 652. So I'm not saying it's 100% accurate, but it probably gives a, a fairly good estimate of what my threshold pace is. So if I'm doing tempo work, I don't want to go below, not much below a seven minute mile, or I'm going to start building up that oxygen debt. Um, and it's going to depend, obviously, on the type of the type of course that you're running. If you're running a hilly course, if you're running at altitude that you're not used to, if it's a super hot day, then your threshold pace is going to be slower and lower because your body's just having to work super hard um, on other things. If you're on a nice flat course, if it's a cool day, your body's not working as hard, then it could be that your threshold pace is going to be a lot faster. So there's a lot of variation that can go into it. Um, and then, of course, when you're done with your threshold running, you want to make sure that you cool down with some easy running because you don't, you don't want to just go from working hard to stopping. Um, that's never good for your body. And typically with, t- with tempo stuff, you know, if you're just getting into threshold or tempo running, you want, only want to start with maybe 15 to 20 minutes at first at that pace. And then gradually as you get stronger, 
you know, you may work up to more of like an hour, depending, um, you know, some of these elite runners are, are putting a lot of threshold work, um, doing multiple miles, <laughs> um, pushing their bodies like that. But it's, it's just a process of something that you build into doing more. You mentioned your watch. You just got it, right? And people are going to be wondering what watch is she using now? Yeah, I've been a, I was a huge Garmin uh, fan for many, many years. And my Garmin just gave up the ghost recently. Very sad. Contacted customer support and it could not be revived because it was one of the old models that they're not making anymore. <laughs> I'm not an early adopter of technology, as you will know, Trevor. <laughs> anyway, so I debated on what to get. And I decided to go with a watch called Koros Apex. And one of the main reasons that I wanted to go with this was because it has really long battery life. And one of my frustrations with my Garmin is that I could be out. I remember during my 50 miler, it died at mile 40. Mm. And it's like, what? You know, all that data, all that data <laughs> gone. <laughs> um, so I wanted something that was going to have really nice long battery life. And also the, the price point was really good on it. You get a lot of features for not as much money. Um, and it has a lot of things like sleep tracking and, you know, can track indoor runs. There's just a lot that it can do. So yeah, I've only had it for maybe three or four weeks, but very happy with it so far. I've only had to charge it twice in almost a month. Wow. And, you know, I do a lot of running. So it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been great. So hopefully um, I will like it for the long term, but it's looking positive so far. And it's called a Koros apex that's correct all right well that's it for this episode thank you so much for being a listener and subscriber to the podcast if you'd like to send us a message or a question we have a contact form on our website marathontrainingacademy.com and we also have a free resource called the runner's toolbox eight inexpensive and essential items to keep at home to help prevent and combat injuries we have a lot to get to in our next episode looking forward to telling you guys what we've been up to and of course talking about the big news from the running world so thanks for being a listener and subscriber to the MTA podcast. Always remember you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. Go away.